Warning, the podcast that you're about to listen to may cause some listeners to start shaking their booty to funky beats like this. Well, hey, hey there, happy innovators. How are you all doing today? I hope that you're doing well. And, uh, you know, I got an idea. A long time ago on the Singularity podcast, I did a podcast called Five Days. And uh, basically the idea was that instead of doing one long podcast in like one day, what I would do is like just talk throughout the course of a week. Like every day I would record just a little bit of talking And then the next day I would record a little bit more and so on and so on until I got five days worth of talking and I'd release that as a podcast. So I thought, well, you know, I'm getting to the 125 podcast mark, you know, I'm there. I got there. So let's celebrate a little bit by having a little bit of a throwback to the five days idea. Okay, so this podcast will be uh, another five days. So in the spirit of this thing. Today is Monday, July 31st, 2023. I want to talk to you about this thing uh, I had mentioned in a couple podcasts earlier called somatics, uh, spelled C-Y-M-A-T-I-C-S. And uh, you know what I'm going to do is uh, part of the tradition here at the Singularity Podcast. I'm going to grab my handy dandy new Oxford American Dictionary and uh, we're going to check out word semantics we're gonna try to see if we can get a definition here for semantics oh you know what oh my gosh it's a first for the singularity podcast here i looked for a word in my new oxford american dictionary and you know what there isn't the word and there isn't a definition the book apparently is older than the word that is pretty crazy so okay i'm gonna close that up put that aside and i'll give you the best uh, explanation for somatics that i can with my limited memory here but uh somatics is basically from what i understand um this idea that sound waves or how sound waves have an effect on water molecules, okay? And while that may not sound like anything spectacular, okay, it actually is pretty spectacular because uh, what scientists are discovering through exploring this idea of pumping sound waves into water, okay, uh, the music depending on what notes are being played or at what tempo and maybe like a a symphony is playing or whatever, whatever kind of music or sound it is, it has an effect on the water molecules and it actually makes them change shape. Now to me, that is absolutely incredible. When I first saw this, because you know, they have like uh, electron microscopes or whatever, you know, looking at these water molecules as they're being hit by different tones. And you can see 
that these water molecules are changing into these absolutely gorgeous kaleidoscope formations or um, like a snowflake gets symmetrical and it's unique and it's beautiful and it's really kind of like geometrically complex. Well, this idea of somatics is like taking that like way past that. Okay. And, uh, you know, the idea is, or the, the, the thinking is, is that, you know, the human body is made up of what do they say? Like 90% water, you know, like our bodies are made up of like 90% or 85% or something like water. So, uh, let's, let's think about this here. Okay. Um, if it's true that, that music, has an effect on water and has the ability to change the molecules of water. What kind of effect is music having on our bodies? Isn't that strange? Like who would have ever thought that there would be some kind of connection like that? I mean, it is absolutely stunning. If you just type in the word, it's spelled C-Y-M-A-T-I-C-S, somatics. Type it into like Google or YouTube or anything, and you'll be able to see the footage that these guys are getting from, you know, hitting these these water molecules with sounds. And it's like, um, you know, it, it does kind of like tie into that whole uh, you know, mud flood antiquatech idea that I've spoken about before in podcasts. And that's interesting too. You know, this idea that there's this connection between like those old cathedrals, right? With the antennas that are the spires, the antennas that are going up into the sky. And for one reason or another, they can't quite figure out why, but underneath all these cathedrals, there's like a flowing stream of water. So there's water somehow connected to these structures and they don't really know how or why that's connected. They have guesses, right? But they also are kind of saying that, you know, with these cathedrals that we see, they have that big rose window in the front, the circle, you know, and it looks like a really ornate kind of like leaded glass pattern. Well, that leaded stained glass pattern looks a lot like these images that the somatics are popping up. And there's people who have this theory that, you know, the right underneath that rose window in all those cathedrals, they all have one right underneath that window. They have a gigantic organ. Okay. And I don't know. <laughs> it seems awfully strange to me that, you know, the music is, right underneath that rose window that just happens to look exactly like these water molecules that are being, you know, <laughs> generated through tone, through uh, music and frequency. Okay. Um, that is so fascinating to me, you know, and it kind of knocks me back a little bit on my heels. Like, okay, I'm making music like every single day, you know, I've devoted my life to this thing. And what exactly am I dealing with here? You know, like, what am I doing here? You know, because, uh, you know, I've made music that people have told me, you know, it brings them peace. It makes them feel at ease, like that kind of thing. And, you know, that's certainly most of the time, 
you know, that's my intention, right? I mean, I, I like to make music that makes me feel good, right? But it kind of throws into question this whole idea of like, why does music make us feel good? Or why does music make us feel bad or anxious? Or, uh, you know, it changes the way our heart feels and the way our minds work, right? And um, I mean, think about it. Think about it. Uh, you know, what kind of effect, okay, does, uh, you know, satisfaction by the Rolling Stones have on your body? Okay. You're li literally the water molecules in your body. Okay. And, uh, you know, what about Mozart? Like, what does his music do to your body, to the water molecules in your arms and your brain, everything, right? I mean, we are made of water and, it's such a strange, strange thing to, for me to think about. And is it a big deal? I don't know. I think it probably is. It's probably a very, very serious discovery. And why it took this long for people to get it together, I don't know. But man, I sure I'm glad they did. And it is so wild to watch this footage and to just see the magnificence of these molecules and how they snap into a different form. As soon as a different note is hit, boom, they, they change. Uh, they change again, you know, da, 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 da. They, they, it will change to whatever they're playing. And oh my gosh, I don't know. I don't know what it all means, but I'm starting to get this sneaking suspicion that this whole music thing and how people relate to music and all those, how it makes people feel and all that, it's got a lot to do with something like on the molecular level of human beings. Isn't that absolutely astounding? It is to me. So, you know, it also makes me think about this one guy I knew a long time ago. I was in a band with him and we were kind of like getting into some philosophical debate, you know, about music and the importance of music and all that. And I might have even mentioned this before in the past, um, but he was like really stupid and we were in this argument and he was kind of saying to me like, Oh, you know, music doesn't really matter. Music is really not that big of a deal. It's not that important to people's lives and all that kind of stuff. And I was just like, dude, I couldn't disagree with you more. I think that music is really important to people. It uh, connects them with people that they love and events in their life or whatever. Music is very important. You know, let's not kid ourselves. But now with this idea of somatics and this whole thing, I don't know. I got to kind of rethink everything. Like I have this feeling or I guess this idea now that what I'm doing here, like with my life and what I've chosen to do is very important. It's pretty serious business I'm in, don't you think? So, yeah. I'm going to leave it there. Somatics, folks. Check it out. Talk to you tomorrow. Okay, so today is August 1st, 2023, Tuesday. And uh, continuing with this five days thing here. And uh, let's see, what did I want to talk about today? I had written something down, but I'm not going to go with that. Oh, I want, I know what I want to talk about. Um, you know, the other night I was watching this, uh, thing on YouTube about Robert F. Kennedy. 
you know, in his presidential run. And, uh, you know, there's this guy who's running his campaign named Dennis Kucinich. And uh, it's kind of a funny thing, but my wife and I, when we lived in Cleveland, had an opportunity to kind of like meet Dennis Kucinich because he went to the same church that we went to. And uh, we were just there and I, I couldn't believe he was there. You know, it was so funny. And, and Dennis Kucinich in Cleveland is kind of like a legend, you know, and my wife and I have always kind of had like an affection for him because he is from Cleveland and he's a smaller dude and he's scrappy and he's always kind of like involved somehow, you know, like when he tried to impeach George W. Bush, you know, and all that stuff. It was like, you know, we just have an affection for that guy. You know, we, we love that guy and uh, we're rooting for him, you know. But uh, he's running the campaign for Robert F. Kennedy. And you can tell by the look on Kucinich's face, you know, while Robert Kennedy is speaking, you know, Kucinich is sitting right behind him. You know, actually, my, my wife and I call Dennis Kucinich Cooch, you know, for short. I don't know why, but whenever we see him, you know, hey, there's Cooch. Look at it. There's Cooch, you know, he's on TV, you know. Um, really, really nice guy, like super nice guy too. But, uh, anyway, so Cooch is, you know, on the screen behind Robert F. Kennedy, he's like sitting there and you can tell he's having the time of his life, you know, because Robert F. Kennedy is actually, you know, a pretty strong candidate for the Democrats. I mean, I don't know. He's pretty good. Um, and we watched his speech, you know, and we watched the whole thing and we listened to everything he had to say. And I've always admired Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I mean, for years and years and years, but I never really thought of him as like a presidential candidate type of guy. But man, he got up to that microphone, he got up to that podium and he started speaking some truth, you know? And, uh, you know, I kind of had this thought after he was finished speaking, I just kind of said it to myself at first, but maybe, okay, maybe right now, uh, the state of American politics being the way that it is, you know, maybe Robert F. Kennedy Jr., okay, knowing as much as he knows about vaccinations and going up against the pharmaceutical companies and all that stuff for like years and years and decades of you know, fighting, you know, for the, the rights of people that are victims of these pharmaceutical companies and stuff like that. Um, maybe, 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 okay, I'm only saying maybe, maybe Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is really the only person that should be president because of that reason alone, right? We went through COVID. We went through all that stuff. You know, some people say that it's done. Some people just refuse to let it go. It's still going, you know, in some ways. And maybe in the next four years, you know, we may need somebody who really knows how to take those guys on. You know, maybe I thought about that. I mean, I can't think of any reasons why I wouldn't want Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to be president. I can't, especially after hearing him speak. 
Now, having said that, and, you know, really having no, you know, political know-how whatsoever and a very limited understanding of American politics, I mean, I will readily admit that, okay? But, you know, I think Trump is going to win, okay? I'll, I'll just say it. I think that Donald Trump is going to be president again, and uh, I don't think anybody stands a chance against him personally. And, you know, while we're at it, I'll just say this. I personally feel that Donald Trump did win the last election. I do think he did win it. And I think that it was stolen. And people go, oh, that's you don't say that. That's not true. That didn't happen. And it's like, okay, whatever, whatever you say. All right. But I kind of look at it like this. You know, Trump. Yeah. You know, he got the election stolen. But do you guys remember back in 2000, and I'm not talking about the young kids here. I'm talking about the older people that voted back in the year 2000. Okay. If you weren't born, you know, before 2000, then don't listen to this. Okay. Cause you're not going to like it, but the election in the year 2000, George W. Bush versus Al Gore, it was blatantly clear to me and blatantly obvious to me that that election was stolen. And people go, no, oh, that's not true. That's not true. Oh, bullshit. You guys remember the hanging chads? It was a shit show. It was ridiculous. And it was blatantly clear and obvious that something was not on the up and up. And Al Gore conceded. He lost, you know, I guess he lost. And uh, I'm not, I'll never forget that. You know, he won that election. And, uh, <laughs> history is going to remember it one way and the rest of the people are going to remember it another, you know, and that was wrong too. You know, when they stole the election from Al Gore, that was wrong too. So it was comeuppance, you know, that's how I see it. Like what's good for the goose is good for the gander and nobody likes to have their election stolen, you know, but to sit there to me anyway, to say to me that you don't think that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. Come on. You got to be kidding. It was so obvious. And I think maybe, maybe that was kind of the point, right? That it was obvious. Like, yeah, we're going to take it. And, uh, you know, maybe they felt that he stole the election from Hillary and you know, all that stuff. I don't know about all that. I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know about this one either, but I do get a strong feeling that, yeah, Donald Trump won and they were like rubbing his face in it. But I do think that Donald Trump is going to win. And I don't think it's going to be close unless there's some unforeseen candidate coming down the pike that we don't know about yet. Like, uh, let's say uh, Michelle Obama, you know, like if she ran or or if like Hillary ran again. Hmm. Ah, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe. I don't know. But I don't think so. I think it's going to be Trump. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because I think what would be kind of cool. Now, this is just like, a, you know, Mike Bostwick, very stupid, unrealistic dreamer idea. OK, but what if what if Trump won the election and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was his vice president? Wow. Wouldn't that be the coolest thing that ever happened? in the past like 30 years, wouldn't it be? Think about that. Like 
Donald Trump wins the presidency and everybody like, you know, loves him or hates him. But then he picks a Democrat to be his VP. You know, think about that. That would be such a bold gesture to America and both sides of the aisle. You know, like there is this faction of people in America that are in the middle. You know, we just want the best candidate. We want things to go right for a change. That's all we want, right? And uh, you can think what you want about Joe Biden and whatever. I don't really care. I don't want to talk about that. You know, I'm not into that. But I'll tell you what, okay? There was this one episode, okay? This is kind of a little bit off base maybe, but there was this one episode of that show called The West Wing. And the episode was called The Supremes. That was the name of the episode. So if you want to check it out, you can. But the basic premise of this one episode was that there was a Supreme Court justice who had died. Okay. And it was a Republican. And there was another Supreme Court justice that was a Democrat that was older and was ready to retire. So rather than picking like some mediocre, you know, in the middle of the road, uh, you know, not Republican, not Democrat, somebody who would speak to both sides, right? The president in this episode had the idea, or at least his staff had the idea, to have the Democrats pick a Democratic justice that they would pick and have the Republicans pick a Republican justice that they would pick, like their wish list, the best of the best, you know, and both would be appointed to the Supreme Court. And, you know, the idea was, oh, you can't do that. You know, you can't let that Democrat be the Supreme Court justice. He's our biggest enemy. And, oh, don't let the Republican, you know, be uh, the Supreme Court. Oh, no way. We're not doing it. But in the end, at the end of the episode, you know, um, the idea was that the Democrats nominated the first female Supreme Court justice and the Republicans picked a guy that, you know, that the Democrats hated. And I think from that episode of television in America, you know, it's just a TV show, that idea that sometimes or maybe even like all the time, that's how it should be, you know, with something like the Supreme Court. If a Supreme Court justice dies or retires, they have a counterpart that's on the other side of the aisle. Like if a Democrat Supreme Court justice dies or retires, then the Republican Supreme Court justice retires as well. And they both get replaced by a Democrat and a Republican. Now think about that. It's a cool idea. And you know, it may be pie in the sky and totally unrealistic. I get it. Okay. But I kind of have the spirit of that thinking in this idea that maybe, maybe, you know, maybe Trump is like wild enough and weird enough and, you know, really kind of like independent enough to ask a Democrat to be his VP. Wouldn't that be phenomenal right now in America, right now, if Donald Trump was not only elected to a third term, okay, but, but he had the foresight and the wisdom to unite America in such a way, you know, where he and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who are, you know, friends, 
for many, many years. They admire each other and they've helped each other out over the years. You know, so it's not like they're enemies or something. You know, have them on the ticket together. You know, wouldn't that just be crazy? I don't even know if it's possible. I don't. But it's an interesting thought, isn't it? I think it is. I would love it. I would be so exhilarated to see a presidential candidate go that far out on a limb, you know, and be that different from any other president. But, you know, honestly and truly in the past, you know, that's kind of the way that it used to be. I don't know if people realize this, but a long time ago, if we had a Republican president, we had another party as the VP. That's the way that it used to go. So, you know, it's kind of a hearkening back to the way things used to be. But, oh, my gosh, what a shockwave it would send throughout the entire world. You know, like uh, especially now with America being so divided and it's all you ever hear about is how divided we are. Oh, imagine it. Imagine it. It would be so fascinating because Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is such a great candidate. He really is. He's knowledgeable. He's a old school Democrat. He wants to build, not destroy, you know, and uh, same with Trump. Oh, man, if that ever happened, oof, that'd be crazy. It would be so awesome. So, yeah, that's all I wanted to talk about today. Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. Talk to you tomorrow. Okay, happy innovators. Today is Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. And uh, today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about carbon dating. You know, that process that scientists do and they determine the age of things, how old things are. And, you know, I wanted to talk about it because I kind of am of the belief or I'm starting to become of the belief that I don't have 100% confidence in this idea of carbon dating, you know? Um, this is just my own opinion and my own speculation about things. So having said that, these scientists that do carbon dating, you know, they'll, they say a number, you know, they, oh, we carbon dated this tree and it dates back to, you know, 200 years ago or, you know, 2,000 years ago or 40,000 years ago or 2 million years ago, <laughs> you know? And to me, it's like, okay, what is carbon dating, first of all, okay? Um, what is it? Like, what? what's the process? And who does the process of carbon dating? Like, where is that done at? And, uh, like, how does that whole thing work? You know, because all they have to do, you know, they, when they're reporting on something that's scientific, all they have to do is say, well, we carbon dated this back to this date. Okay. So it proves that this is this old. This thing is as old as this carbon dating says that it is. Okay. But okay. Who did that? And how was it done? And where was it done? And how accurate is it? And 
Isn't it true that you could just say that you carbon dated something? Isn't that true? Right? You could just say you did. And you could say, oh, it's two million years old. Right? And it's not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not. Um, that has happened. Okay? With this process. Now, it might be because there's like a flaw or something. I don't know. I don't know. But it's just one of those things when I hear about it, kind of sounds like bullshit. Okay? Don't you think sometimes, like, they'll go, we found a snail shell and we carbon dated it back two million years ago. And it's like, really? Really? Like, something that's two million years old is like, you know, still here. <laughs> you know, like, it didn't disintegrate and decompose over time, over two million years, you know? And, oh, the scientists, they get their panties in a knot because somebody's questioning their authority. You know, somebody's questioning them. But it's like, I don't care. You know, I don't care. It's like, just because somebody says something doesn't mean it's true. And I don't know. I'm kind of like on the hunt and the search for some proof here, you know. What is this carbon dating thing that, you know, proves and disproves everything under the sun? You know, for example, you know, they have this cloth that they believe to be the burial cloth of Jesus. They call it the Shroud, the Shroud of Turin. I might have even talked about it before in podcasts. And in, in case you don't know what that is, you don't know what the Shroud of Turin is. At this point, I would imagine everybody does, but you can't assume that, right? So, uh, according to the story here, um, a relic was found, a piece of cloth that had been preserved and protected for a very long time, you know? Um, and the cloth has the image of a crucified man on it. And when you look at the cloth, it's kind of like just like a white piece of fabric with some like yellowish brownish stains on it. It doesn't look like much. Okay. But a long time ago, maybe like a hundred years ago or something, there was a photographer by the name of Segundo Pia. And he was the first person that was allowed to take a photograph of the Shroud of Turin. Okay. And uh, this is like, you know, back when cameras were first invented. Okay. Supposedly. All right. And uh, when this guy took the picture of the cloth, you know, it looked like, you know, the cloth, a white cloth with some stains on it. But when he looked at the photographic negative of that image of the cloth, it has a perfect rendering, a perfect photographic image of a man who appears to be crucified in the manner that Christ was crucified. Just like the people who were like the guardians or the keepers of this relic, just like they had professed it was. Okay. And, uh, you know, the scientists roll in. Okay. And I think Glenn Beck just had uh, Barry Schwartz one of the scientists that was initially asked to the Vatican or to the chapel in Turin or wherever it was to study this cloth up close and personal. Uh, the, they let people in to study it. 
and determine what it was. And of course, of course, they carbon dated it. And up, oh, it's from medieval times. You know, we carbon dated it. It's that's it's not real. It's not really Jesus. It's not really the face of Christ on the Shroud of Turin. Okay, because we've carbon dated it and we know. Okay, we're not biased or anything. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, give me a break. You know, you have got to be kidding me, right? Come on. You know, <laughs> get out of here. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, I mean, as far as the Shroud of Turin is concerned, okay, nobody knows how the image was put on there. Nobody knows exactly what happened or what it is. All they know is that, you know, <laughs> according to science, it's from med the medieval times. And uh, this image is a photographic image of Christ at the moment of resurrection. Okay. Like that would be one of the theories on how this image was imparted onto this fabric. Okay. Like a burst of radiation or a burst of light so bright it burned the image into the cloth. Okay. Scorched the cloth. Okay. And, uh, oh, people have been arguing over this relic for so long. It's the most studied artifact in human history. You know, and uh, all the scientists all say, oh, it's, you know, it's fake. It's a it's a it's a painting or whatever. It's not a painting. Actually, what's weird about that is that guy, Barry Schwartz, that was on Glenn Beck, that one that scientist I just mentioned. I actually talked to him on the phone once about the Shroud of Turin. I talked to him for maybe like two or three hours on the phone. And I got to ask him all the questions that I wanted to ask, and he answered them for me. And it was so cool. And uh, that's a separate story, you know, but I, I did get a chance to actually talk to him one on one. And uh, I personally believe it's like, you know, come on, look at the image that we're looking at. You know, it's not fake. Whatever that is, uh, it, it's not fake. And uh, it's not painted, you know, it's nobody knows how it got there. Nobody can really know for sure how that image is on that cloth. But consider that that image existed for thousands of years before the camera did. And it wasn't until, you know, a hundred years ago or something when somebody was actually able to photograph it, that we were able to see that face the way that we see it when that's flipped into a negative, okay? It's absolutely outrageous and astounding to see, to me. You know, so I question this idea of carbon dating. You know, like what? what is this carbon dating? What is it? Where is it done? Who does it? And like, how do we know that the results are accurate and trustworthy? I don't know. Maybe if you're listening to this, and you know the answer to that question, feel free to let me know. I'll listen to you. I will hear you out. You know, let me know. Otherwise, I don't know. What is this carbon dating thing? I don't know. That's all I wanted to say today. Take it easy. Talk to you tomorrow. Okay, happy innovators. Today is... 
Thursday, August 3rd, 2023. And today I wanted to talk to you about this story about my dad and uh, just a little short little story. I'm not sure if I've ever talked about this before on my podcasts, but uh, I'm thinking about my dad a lot today in particular, and this idea came up. So a long time ago when I was really young and I was trying to get my first drum set together, you know, I knew this guy named Scott and he had a really crappy drum set, but he had a hi-hat stand, you know, a hi-hat on a drum set are these two symbols that are like on top of each other and they have a pedal and a clutch attached to it. So when you step on the pedal, the symbols close together and they make a sound. And, uh, you know, on a standard drum set, um, there's three elements to a drum set that really kind of make the drum set. You have a bass drum, the big round drum on the floor, you know, and you have a snare drum that's, you know, maybe 14 inches in diameter, six to eight to 10 inches deep. It's the one that's right between your legs, okay? And then on your left-hand side, if you're a right-handed drummer like I am, you have the hi-hat. Now with the hi-hat, snare drum, and the bass drum, you could pretty much play anything. You know, you can make it work, okay? And uh, at the time, I had a bass drum, I had a snare drum, but I didn't have a hi-hat. And this friend of mine, Scott, had a hi-hat that he was getting rid of. So, you know, I said to my dad, you know, I really wanted to buy this hi-hat. It was like 50 bucks or something, you know? And uh, my dad was kind of, I don't know, I don't know. Oh, dad, come on, please. I really, really want this. I really, really want this, you know? Oh, I don't know. It sounds like it's junky. You know, it's not worth 50 bucks, you know? And, uh, oh, I was heartbroken. You know, I was just like, oh, this getting a drum set thing for me when I was young was like an uphill climb, you know? It's such an expensive instrument. And, you know... Like I said in that drumming video thing I did a couple months ago or whatever now, if you want to go back and watch it, where I talk about that, the Mike Bostwick drum practice thing, you know, it's like, oh, it just sucked. You know, trying to get a drum set together when you don't really have a job, you're too young to work, you know, but you know what you want, you know what you want to do, you know, you're being called to it, you know, you're obsessed with it. So what's cool is, though, is that my dad was really a good dad. And he kind of knew by the way that I was talking to him, he must have known that, like, I was really burning for this. Like, I really, really wanted it. So my dad, being the cool person that he was, throws me in the car. We drive over to Sam's Music in Parma, Ohio. (laughs) Okay. And my dad takes me into the music store and he says, you go into the music store and you pick out whatever hi-hat symbols you want. And a stand, a hi-hat stand, and we will get that. At the time, I was just like beaming. You know, I was so grateful 
because it made me really realize how much my dad loved me, you know? Yeah, he was buying me something, but it wasn't really about the money. It was about the gesture to me. You know, I come from a family of six kids. You know, we didn't have a lot of extra money around, but he knew that I wasn't playing around. This was a passion for me, you know? And, uh, oh, I just, you know, I just love, I loved him for that. I loved him for that. And, you know, I still have in my studio, I'm looking at it right now. Okay. That set of hi-hat symbols that my dad bought me like 30 or 40 years ago. Okay. I had them mounted and framed in a glass case on my wall in my studio because I don't you know, use them anymore. They're decommissioned, you know, they're way old. And I actually ripped one of them a long time ago. So I retired them. I bought new hi-hat symbols, but I put those away in this little case in my studio, a glass case. And I had my parents sign them for me, you know. And uh, at the time, my parents thought that was kind of funny that they were signing my symbols. But my dad was kind of like looking at me. Like, I think he felt the same way I did the day that we bought him. Like, he felt that way when I asked him to sign it for me because I had kept them. I still had them. And they were treasures to me now. Okay, they're not on my drum set anymore. These are going to be with me forever. And I'm going to look at them on my wall forever. And your signature is going to be on there. And they wrote some, you know, sweet nothings on there you know, to their son, you know, and I'm looking at it right now. It's in my studio right now. And uh, that was a story that I wanted to share with you all. And you know what? While I'm at it, okay, while I'm at it, I'm going to give a little bit of props to my mom here, too. Um, This was not planned for today. The symbol story was planned, but not this. But I'm going to tell you this one anyway. Um, My mother's father was a living legend like in my family you know when he was alive he was unlike any other person I've ever known before or probably ever will know he was fascinating if you go back to the Snowflake 33 podcast okay go back I did like three or four podcasts in a row about my grandfather and how much I admired him and how he was kind of like you know, the blueprint for me, like how to do this. You know, my grandfather was a very creative, very unique individual. He was actually an artist, but he didn't realize that he was, you know, he thought artists like only painted, you know, only made sculptures. He didn't realize that he was living a life of an artist, his whole house was stuff that he had touched and made and everything was unique and weird and interesting to look at. And, you know, I think I told the story of how he took his television set and he gutted it and he turned it into a bookshelf, you know, and, oh, isn't that funny? Grandpa turned his TV into a bookshelf, right? But it's actually like a pretty interesting piece of modern art, you know? And he didn't see it that way, but that's what he was. Well, anyway, my grandfather wore this ring on his, it was an engagement ring from 
my grandmother before they got married and she had his initials on it and had three diamonds in it three really small diamonds but it's gold and it was a nice ring you know and ever since I could remember my grandfather had this ring on his hand you know it was just he had these massive hands you know he was a lineman for the Ohio Bell Telephone Company so you know his hands were like leather you know and he was strong strong dude and uh ever since I was little he'd had this ring on on those hands you know I would see it so my grandfather eventually came down with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, my mother was made the executor of his will and she was handling his estate, you know, and uh, we had to sell his house and clean it out, get it ready to sell and all that. And my grandfather went to a nursing home against his wishes, but you know, there was no choice. He was very ill and my mother took on the burden of you know, handling his estate and you know truth be told you know she was kind of like you know on her own like her sisters were not very helpful to her at all and I was like right at that age you know where I was home you know I was old enough and strong enough to help her so a lot of the time it wound up being just like me and my mom or me, my mom, and my little brother at my grandpa's house, cleaning it out, doing what needed to be done. You know, my dad wouldn't be home from work yet. I would have gotten home from school. We got in the car and we went and we dealt with things and then we would come home, right? So I spent all this time with my mom, just me and my mom, sometimes my little brother, you know, cleaning stuff out. I would hear her on the phone with her sisters and oh, it was awful, you know, just awful because there was a lot of money involved and oh people get so damn weird when it comes to money you know money makes people do weird weird things okay but that's another story but anyway uh what happened was my mother wound up you know as the executor of my grandfather's estate she didn't take any money or any payment or anything but she did take one thing And what she took was that engagement ring that my grandfather wore on his right hand. So many, many years later, you know, after my grandfather had been dead for many years, you know, my wife and I went back to Cleveland to visit my mom. I think it was around the time my sister was really sick. So we came home for Christmas and, you know, I got the chance to spend some time with my family and my mom and dad, like alone. You know, and we were talking. Oh, yeah. You know, and I said to my mom, oh, remember that ring that grandpa used to wear on his hand? Oh, his hands were so big. And she's kind of looked at me and like tilted her head. And she just got up and she walked out of the room. And a couple minutes later, she walks back into the room and she hands me this jewelry box, this little ring box. I open it. And of course, it's the ring from grandpa. You know, oh, my gosh, mom, look, it's the ring. You know, yeah, we were. That's cool. You still have it, you know? And she's like, put it on your hand. And I'm like, okay. She's like, does it fit? And I'm like, yeah, actually it does fit. She's like, keep it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what? You want me to keep it? Mom, this is grandpa's ring. Like, you're his daughter. Like, no, no, I can't take this. Oh, no, no, no. Just take it. Oh, my gosh. Like, thank you. So 
from that day forward, I've had this ring on my finger. It's on my hand. You probably could see it in some of my videos even, you know. Although when I drum, I like to take rings off because they pinch the skin on my fingers. You know, you have to take rings off. At least I do when I'm drumming. But um, I wear this ring on my finger every day, right? So all these years later, all these years passed. That was like 2014 or 2016 or something like that. My mother passes away, right? A few months ago. And my sister, who is in charge of my parents' estate, comes up to me at the funeral and she hands me this box. And inside this box is a note that my mother wrote. And I'll read it for you right now. Hang on. Okay, so here we go. Here's the, here's the note my mother wrote. My sister handed to me at her funeral. In payment for services rendered as the legal guardian for my beloved father for the last seven plus years, and as my sister received the engagement and wedding band of our mother, said bands of gold and several diamonds, and my other sister received a ruby ring from my mother, I do desire and claim the gold ring of my father, having never taken payment from guardianship for said services for the legal caring of my dad's money and person. Signed, my mother. Okay. So my sister walked up to me at the funeral and handed this to me. And I read it. And I got to tell you, you know, basically, I, I had no idea, okay, that my mother had refused payment from all the bullshit she had to put up with from her sisters in getting my grandfather's estate settled. Okay, because it was awful, all right? They were they were horrible to her. And I was there. I heard it. I saw it. It was terrible. My mother didn't take any payment, okay, except for this ring. It's on my finger, okay? So basically, all my mother ever inherited from her father, she gave it to me. Now, I don't know if that was because... I spent so much time with her there. You know, I don't know. I don't know why she decided to give it to me. I got, like I said, there's, you know, six kids in my family, you know. But what it said to me at my mother's funeral, of course, at that very sad and confusing moment, you know, was that my mom loved me. She loved me. Like if I ever wondered or, you know how it goes, right? With your folks. You just don't know sometimes, right? Oh my gosh. It was like she was speaking to me from beyond the grave. You know, you know she gave me, me, the only thing that she ever inherited from her father. The only payment she took for all that bullshit she had to go through. I don't know. It's worth mentioning, right? Love you, Mom. Love you, Dad. Wherever you guys are right now, I do. That's all I wanted to say today. Take it easy, y'all. Talk to you tomorrow. Okay, happy innovators. Today is Friday, August 4th, 2023. 
And uh, today I want to talk about this idea that, you know, living in post-COVID America, supposedly, okay, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how there are still some people that are wearing masks. And I don't quite know what to make of that, you know? It's a bit strange to me. Um, and maybe in some ways a little bit pitiful to see people that are just hanging on so much to that idea of a pandemic and the danger and all that stuff, like the paranoia and the fear of COVID, you know, like everybody else is walking around like, you know, without a mask on. It's okay now, you know, you can take the mask off. And there's some people that absolutely refuse to let it go. And there's not many, okay, but every once in a while you'll be walking around in a store or somewhere out in the public sphere and you'll see these people, men and women, old and young or whatever. Usually they're old women though, and they're still wearing a mask. It's like, what's going on in your head? You know, like, what's up? What's up with that? That's really weird, man. To me, at this point, you know, um, I know I've talked about it before in podcasts where, like, during COVID, you know, people were crazy. You know, I got, like, uh, approached by a, a Karen in a grocery store. And, oh, my gosh, this lady was, like, flipping out. You know, and just like, I'm standing there looking at her like, what's up? Like, you are losing your mind. I didn't even do anything, you know? And, uh, oh, I went on a whole diatribe about it. I think I was talking about how, uh, you know, she was probably afraid. And what we're seeing manifest is like her fear, trying to control everybody and make sure everybody follows the rules. You know, like, you know, this, uh, this sense of power she got from, you know, controlling other people, you know, because she couldn't control anything else, you know. Um, you know, it's really sad. It's pathetic. This idea that now in 2023, you know, and there's no more pandemic and uh, there's still these hangers on, you know, they just will not let the mask thing go and they, they want that fear. They need to have that fear. You know, isn't that sad? I think it's sad. I mean, there's not really much more to say about it, but I did want to talk about it because I think it's just sad. Yes, pathetic, um, unusual. Okay. And, you know, there might be a couple screws loose there. You know, if you're still kind of like afraid, like what's going on in your noodle? You know, you really probably need some therapy or something. You know what I mean? Like what's going on? Are you okay? Like, what is your life like where you're still wearing a mask to the grocery store? You know, <laughs> what the hell is going on? You know, oh, it's just like, you know, we will probably live, you know, the rest of our lives never truly like being able to forget about COVID. You know, it's just one of those things. It's like, it's never going to go away like entirely. You know, there's always going to be those people that are out on the fringe like that, that just won't let it go. They can't. I, I don't know. 
I didn't bother asking, you know, I don't go up to them and say, hey, what's up with the mask? You know, I wish that I could. But if I did, I, I don't even know what kind of response I would get. You know, people are so crazy now. You know, it's just like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you guys know what I'm talking about. But, you know, sometimes when you're out in public and you engage people just on a social level and you just talk to them, people are freaking weird now. I mean, I'm weird. OK, I will admit that I'm eccentric. OK, I know that. And I, I don't care. I am. But I'm not like freaked out. You know what I mean? Like I don't walk around like freaked out. I don't. And oh my gosh, the people that I see and talk to sometimes, complete strangers, you know, they, uh, you know, COVID, in my opinion, has caused a lot of people to like lose their minds. I really think so. I think that fear for whatever reason, with some certain people, it shook them to their foundations. You know, I can't imagine that happening, but it did, I guess, for some people. You know, for me, it didn't, but it doesn't mean anything. If Just because I don't feel that way doesn't mean other people won't. But it, it doesn't make it less weird, does it? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Do you agree with me? And, you know... On the other hand, okay, maybe, maybe, okay, uh, we shouldn't forget about COVID. You know, like there's, there's an election coming up and uh, there's votes to be cast. And a lot of people lost their ass with COVID. Their lives were destroyed by that stupid thing. You know, it was so stupid. I mean, can we all admit that now? At least that COVID was just like, this era of absolute stupidity, you know, just the most stupid, mindless stuff going on. And we should not let them forget. You know what I mean? Like, no, no, we're not going to like forget. I, I remember it sucked. And you know what? Somebody should answer for that because it sucked. People lost their businesses. They lost their jobs, their livelihood. They lost their houses. You know, people lost, some people lost everything. And some people lost family members that were, you know, I don't know. They got COVID and they died. You know, it's like, ah, uh, I don't know. Maybe there's something to that. Like, yeah, let's not forget. You know, maybe let's not forget. You know, on one hand, it's nice to think, okay, it's over. You can take the mask off now, please. You know, you're okay. Everything is okay. You can take your mask off now, but at the same time, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's like, you know what? Let's not forget. Let's not forget. You're right. You're right. Wearing that mask. You remind me that that was bullshit. What happened and the way it went down, it was really, really destructive and bad. And for the most part, you know, I don't know. You can't say that it destroyed America, but whoa. It came pretty damn close, didn't it? You know, uh, let's not do that again. You know what I mean? Let's not do that again. You know what I mean? Let's not do that again. I'm sure you know what I mean. And so my happy innovators, that's it for this episode of the Singularity Podcast. Another five days. And you know what? 
maybe I'll do this again next time. So peace out, everybody. Take care of yourselves. Be happy. Have fun. And remember, folks, my happy innovators, if you want to keep what you've got, you've got to give it away. Take it easy, everybody. Okay, happy innovators. I got some music for you at the end of this podcast. And today what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you uh, a version of the song Monachine by PC3. Now, I know, I know, I know. Like either the last episode or the episode before that, I shared with you the PC3 version of Monachine. But what I'm going to share with you today is a version of Monachine that was never released really to the public. Okay, there was a version of Monashine that I did, a mix down, a special mix of it that I gave to a friend of mine whose son was doing snowmobiling videos. And she asked me if I would give him some music for his snowmobiling videos. And of course, I obliged because I loved this woman. She was such a great friend of mine, you know. And uh, oh, she went to bat for me a few times and really went out on a limb for me. And uh, I was grateful and I'm glad to let her son have a piece of music like privately just for him. You can use this. You're the only person who's got this mix of this song. This is for you and your mother. And uh, unfortunately, that friend of mine uh, passed away from COVID. Yeah, she did. She died. And I uh, still can't believe she's not around because in case I didn't mention it before, I really loved this woman. She was great to me. She was great to me. She was a good friend. And uh, all of a sudden she was gone, just out of the blue, gone. And uh, oh, I love her husband, too. Her whole family. So there you go. And this is the private mix for my good friend Sue's son and his snowmobiling videos. Check it out. Take it easy, everybody. (laughs) 